0: Good morning. This is a time of year, of course, when many of our people are traveling, but what a blessing to see all who are here. You know, there's, for me personally, two reasons to come to church on Sunday. First is to partake of the Lord's Supper, for it has been God's plan from the earliest time that every Sunday the body of Christ in every locale partake of the loaf and the cup. And I personally need that for my own spiritual life and survival as I focus upon the cross and thank God that someday I'll be in heaven because of the cross of Jesus. But also as I partake of the loaf and the cup, which in some sense are the body of Christ, there's infused a spiritual life into me. The second reason I come is that of which Bill spoke a couple of Sundays ago, Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together in the manner of some is, but exhorting one another so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after we've come to a knowledge of truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice, so on and so on. So the second reason I come is to encourage you (laughs) that by just the presence of Jesus in me and you can be encouraged to not sin willfully because Satan is doing everything he can to cause you to do that. Those are two reasons I come on Sunday. I don't know about you. What's the most important day of your life? And what event makes that the most important day? Have you ever thought about that? You might say, well, it was a day I was born. How could any day be more important than that, but we can think of a lot of days that the event within it causes us to say, what an important day. Maybe the first day of school for you. Maybe when you got your first bicycle, when you got your driver's license, when you became 21. I can think back of uh, many days that are significant to me. Before Barb and I had any children, I couldn't stand babies. They were just a nuisance. Barbara had a sister born after we were married, and that little rascally girl would fool with my radio, and it was an aggravation. I couldn't stand babies. And then our first child was born. You think you've known love, but you've never known love like you have in your heart the first time you hold your newborn in your hands. There's a love born in your heart that you cannot describe. That's one of the most significant days of my life. I think about August 20th, 1949, when Barbara and I, in the living room of a preacher that had been on vacation and just come back and had his filthy fishing clothes on and needed a shave. His wife was there and went next door, got a neighbor lady, and the two of us stood before him and exchanged our vows and began 59 years together. What a day. What a day. There are many days that we could look at and say, that is one, if not the, one of the most important days of my life. None of those, however, are the most significant day of my life. We'll speak of that later. Today is the 1987th birthday of the church. This is the day of Pentecost. And today is the anniversary of. Of the culmination of events that had begun 53 days before, if you use Jewish time, 52 days before, if you use Roman time. That made it possible for God to open the doors of heaven and extend salvation to humanity. 53 days or 52 days ago, depending on how, what sort of time you're using on a Friday In this auditorium, we remembered the death of Jesus upon the cross. Last Sunday, Jim Grinnell speaking from Hebrews, speaking of Jesus Christ who despised the shame of that event, and yet he embraced it. There's no way any human mind can grasp the horror, the heavenly horror, of what happened on that day. Neither is there any human language sufficient to fully describe it. But also none of us can fully comprehend that because of that, God could extend humanity grace. We can't wrap our minds around the, that, nor is there language sufficient to describe that. And then on the first day of the week, the empty tomb. you remember that 50 days ago? When we celebrated the time that Jesus came forth from the grave and conquered death, And hope became a possibility for mankind. It was not complete yet. That was but the first step. But that's when it began. And then 40 days later, on Mount Olivet, Jesus and His 11 disciples were on this mountain and looking down. They could have seen the brook Kidron and across that the city of Jerusalem with the gleaming tabernacle of Jehovah. But they were not looking at that. They were looking at Jesus. And he began to speak to them about things that were to come. And one of them said, Lord, is, is now what you're talking about, is that when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said, You know, that's not for you to worry about these times and seasons, but uh, you're going to be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, the uttermost parts of the world, but <laughs> don't do anything until you receive the Holy Spirit. And he told them to go in Jerusalem and tarry, and as they were listening to the words, He began to rise above the earth. And they began to follow him as he disappeared in the clouds. And suddenly a heavenly being said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand you looking up into the heavens? For this same Jesus will come again in like fashion. That was the ascension. Now, that was May the 25th ten days ago. And those of us who are those at least who are constantly aware of these things celebrated the Feast of Ascension on May the 25th. And so in obedience to Christ they went to Jerusalem and on the second story of a building, a hundred and twenty followers of Jesus gather together and begin to pray for that is what he had commanded some years ago Jim Grinnell preached a sermon and this is language you would expect a marriage counselor to use he said God's love language is obedience indeed it is that Jesus said he who loves me will keep my commandments And he who keeps my commandments, he it is that loveth me." Important thing to think about, isn't it? I know some people say, well, I I live by experience, but experience is not the important thing. Are you obedient to what Christ has commanded? And they were obedient. In that upper room were the women, including Jesus' mother, Mary, The eleven were there, as was Matthias. Jesus' brothers were there, his biological brothers. So they prayed for ten days. And on the tenth day, something happened that no one ever could have expected. Upon their heads, something looking like tongues of fire began to appear. And they began to speak languages none had ever heard. One wonders as you look at the text of Acts chapter 1 and then the beginning of chapter 2, how much of this phenomena was all the 120 or just the 12? If we follow the rule of grammar, it was just the twelve because they were the immediate antecedent when it said they were all together in one place. Also, it's interesting when it said there were Jews, devout men under every nation of heaven, and they said we hear these men speak in our own language when Peter and the others got up and began to speak publicly. And if you notice the nations that are represented there are actually 13, but if you group together linguistically, there were 12 languages and dialects that were being heard. Isn't that interesting? As by this time, Matthias had been chosen to replace Judas, so there were 12. And Peter began to preach then when the he began to speak in a language that everyone understood, which was Aramaic. And what a sermon. This is that which is spoken of by the prophet Joel. And he begins to quote the latter part of Joel chapter 2. Between 837 and 815 B.C., the nation of Judah had one of the most horrible experiences that any group of people ever knew. For the nation, even though they had the law of God, they, did not been, they had not been careful about precisely obeying it, and they had been cavalier about their obedience. And the day of Jehovah came upon them a day of judgment. And a horde of locusts began to sweep across the land. Joel, Joel describes them as the army of God. They run on the walls, they leap upon the city. And Joel chapter 2 cries out, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm. It's interesting to me that 30 or so years ago, somebody created a praise song. <laughs> Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm, they run on the hills, the army. hoop doo But let me tell you, that was a dirge. How could you celebrate what they were horribly experiencing? Locusts devoured everything, they filled the wells. As a matter of fact, they destroyed things to the point they had to suspend sacrifices in the temple because there was nothing to bring. A day of darkness. A day of judgment. The day of Jehovah. But in the midst of that horrible time, God Brought a word of hope for the future. In that day, I shall pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. Some of your versions say nations and so on. The word is flesh, meaning all people of every language and every nation. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams, and both men and women shall prophesy. And on and on he goes, describing not only that glorious day, but looking to the future at the end of the last. We're in the last days right now, have been since the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. But in the last days, at the end of the last days, there will be signs in the heavens, the moon will turn to blood, and so on. And the Holy Spirit anointed that sermon. And then He began to speak of what they had done. This crowd. You know... That this Jesus, whom you crucified, had gone among you doing signs and wonders. You can't deny this. And then he spoke of the prophet David's words that his body would never seem decay. And Peter said, you know, that wasn't David. His bones are in the ground. But it was a prophecy about Christ whom God raised up. And then he indicted them. This Jesus, whom you with wicked and cruel hands crucified. God has raised up and made him Lord and King. Not only that, today he is seated at the right hand of God. And it is he who has poured out this which you have just witnessed. And the people were pricked in their hearts and said to the disciples, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter's response has been the response that is the right response from that time forward. Repent and be immersed every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is not unto you but it is unto you and to your children and to many as afar off as many as the Lord our God shall call. And that day in obedience 3,000 people were immersed into Christ. Let's take a moment and look at that response of Peter. Many things we've said before in previous sermons. I'm not apologizing for repeating. (laughs) Repent. The word is metanoeo, which means change your mind. You crucified this man. Let me ask you, let me command you, let me exhort you. Change your mind about who he is. Not one you with wicked and cruel hands can nail to cross, but the divine one who is today in heaven and in charge. It's interesting that word that in most versions is rendered repent is really sort of a synonym for belief. As pistuo, the other Greek word meaning believe. Believe who he is. And as you do that, of course, (laughs) he'll become Lord. And then be immersed, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ. Now, the Greek preposition here is epsilon, noon, in, which means upon his authority. We say there's power in the name of Jesus, but it is upon his authority when there is such power. In other words, it is as if Christ himself were immersing those converts because those who did it were doing it as his agent. When I was a boy, there was a cartoon strip about a policeman and detectives, and very commonly when a criminal was fleeing, the policeman would shout, Stop! In the name of the law! <laughs> in other words, in the authority of the law. So it is in the authority of Christ I am doing this. Now, that there has been a particular sect that has arisen and said, no one is legitimately baptized unless when you lure them in the water, you say, I'm doing this in the name of Jesus. If you said, into the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit, that wasn't good enough. You have to be baptized again in the name of Jesus. They totally misunderstand the sense of the Greek. For it means upon the authority of Christ. Now, in Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. Jesus said, go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Here's how you do it. Immersing them into ice, into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In other words, you enter into a relationship. That's not what Acts 2.38 is saying. It is saying, upon the authority of Christ, do it. And the result is you are, therefore, immersed into a relationship with the Father, Son and Holy Spirit and then you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit what a tremendous thing to think about when you come out of the watery grave of Christian baptism the very presence of God enters you through the indwelling presence Of the Holy Spirit but he said be immersed for the remission of your sins the Greek word there means unto or for the purpose of there's some who argue that immersion has no place in salvation think that if you want but the Word of God doesn't say that you remember Saul of Tarsus traveling to Damascus, filled with anger against the disciples of Jesus, seeking to arrest everyone he could for reasons known only to God and because of God's sovereign act as he drew near to Damascus. Suddenly, a bright light began to shine. He fell to the ground. Those with him saw the light. They heard a voice but couldn't understand it. But the voice said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. And then he was told, go into Damascus and in tarry. You'll be told what to do. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. Ananias, I want you to go talk to this man. Lord, you don't know who he is. Yes, I do. You go. <laughs> and so he went to Saul Saul was healed of the blindness that had not partially healed at least of that blindness. The scales fell off his eyes. There's intimation later that that was a problem. Galatians chapter, closing chapter, it says, Paul says, you Galatians got the gospel because I was traveling. I had an infirmity and I had to stop and spend time with you. And if you could, you would have given me your very eyes. Implication is that must still have been a eye problem for him. In Acts nine we have the historical record of that event. Two other times in Acts we find Paul describing, and in each of those times he gives detail, and in Acts twenty two, sixteen, the last time, he says, Here's what Ananias said to me Why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized, washing away thy sins and calling upon the name of the Lord. And Peter, an amazing figure, <laughs> describing those who, in the days of Noah, were sinning, and describes Noah and his family. These eight souls were saved in an ark. And he says, a like figure, wherein baptism doth also now save us. And Noah and his family in the ark were brought safely through the water. And he says, baptism. Immersion has the same role in our lives. We could go on and on, but the historical record is so clear. In the New Testament, after Pentecost, there are nine cases of conversion. And when you're studying statistical probability to try to arrive at the truth, And you can have many, many uh, episodes or incidents or cases to study. And you look for consistency in those. Of the nine cases, here are two things that are present, every one of them, hearing and believing and immersion. In some of them, there's confession and some repentance, but those two are present every one. That being true, how could we not say that immersion has a place? In salvation but then you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit what does that mean Ephesians chapter 1 Paul writing to that church you were sealed with the spirit of promise and then he says (laughs) that's God's down payment on heaven he says the same thing in two passages in the letter to the Corinthians. If you're going to buy a house, one thing that often happens is you go to the homeowner from whom you're buying the house, and you might say, I have been to the bank and have been extended credit, but right now I don't have the money, but let me give you $5,000, that's earnest money. That's a guarantee I'll come up with the rest. And you know, that's the way the Holy Spirit is presented in the epistles of Paul for you and me. The fact that you have the Holy Spirit in you is God's guarantee that He's going to give you heaven. And the word is used, sealed. Now. Some of you can. I know Larganel can. Some others do too. My mother used to can. And my, we always had a big garden, and you get all this stuff you put it in the jar, and we had a wash tub the way we did it back in those on the stove, get the water boiling, put it in there, and get it real hot, and put on the seal, and then let it out and cool. And that's, But that's not what this is talking about. <laughs> seal in this instance, and it was true in those times referred to a person's, shall we say, brand. When you wrote a letter to someone and you wanted them to know it surely came from you, you'd take some candle and wax and melt it, and then either with a ring or some other instrument, you had your own logo and you would press into that. That was your seal. And there are many things that you could put your seal on that said, when Jesus was in the tomb, you remember they put a seal on it. It was a Roman emblem, if you say, saying, if you open this tomb, you're violating the property of Rome. When the Holy Spirit enters you, that's God putting his brand on you. We've illustrated this before previous sermons. Now, when I was a boy, growing up, we'd be driving down the road, and you'd see signs, Danger, Open Range. And that meant that there were just cattle roaming about, and you'd better be careful. You might hit one, or they might hit you. And when calves were born, the cowboys would take the brand and brand the calves. And those from this ranch would put their brand, and those with that ranch would put their brand. But then on the free range, they all roamed together until roundup day. And then the cowboys separated, those with this brand here and those with that brand there. When the Holy Spirit enters you, God puts His brand on you And all the forces of heaven and hell know you're His. And I've jokingly wondered, on the resurrection day, when Matthew talks about when the angels come and start separating the wheat from the tares and so on, will there be angelic cowboys who will ride around saying, Hoop, uh, that one's mine. Hoop, that one's over there. We know (laughs) But when the Holy Spirit enters you, God's brand is placed upon you. Talking with one of those who will be immersed today, and God has blessed us with this morning, and we talked about that aspect, this individual asked me, well, once you're branded, you can never get rid of that, can you? The answer is, yes, you can. Nobody can take it from you. The devil can't take it from you. Angels can't take it from you. I was going in research this past week at 71st and Sheridan. I noticed there's a new, uh, I guess, a store there with a big sign, Tattoos Removed by Laser Process. (laughs) It's possible to have that brand removed. How do you do it? Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10. After we have come willingly to know the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, if we fall away, there remaineth no more sacrifice for our sins, but only a fearful looking to the fire of God. Let me tell you, once saved, always saved may be comforting to some sinner but it's a bunch of baloney living a faithful life for jesus is important not perfect who can be that's why in first john we have that passage written to christians to christians if we say we have no sin christians We are liars and the truth is not in us. But he is just and will forgive us our sins. If we confess our sins, he is just and will forgive us our sins. For the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That's one reason for the Lord's table. Let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Roman Catholics, of course, have confession. And you go, Father... (laughs) I have sinned, and then you talk about any sins that you're aware of since your last confession. We don't have a confessional booth, but it is important before you go to that table that you take a moment and say, God, please audit my life. Make me aware of that for which I need to repent and receive forgiveness, and it is received when you come to God confessing your fault. What an amazing thing, though, to think about the fact of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Immediately comes to mind what Jesus said is recorded in John chapter 7. This is a time of controversy. And then he said, Out of their bellies will flow rivers of living water. This spake he of the Holy Spirit that would be given to those who believe in him after he had been glorified. But at that time he had not yet been Glorified. It's interesting, as we've mentioned before in sermons, that every time in the New Testament where you read about the filling of the Spirit, it is in the present tense which means an ongoing action. It is a fountain from heaven flowing into you. It's not that you carry about a reservoir of God's Spirit. No, you're a conduit. Isn't that something to think about? That's why we don't quench the Spirit the way you break off a garden hose sometimes. It is my prayer every day that the Holy Spirit will make me aware of anything in my life that is quenching that flow of the Holy Spirit into me so that every room I enter, every person I encounter, even if I'm not aware of it and they're not aware of it, the Holy Spirit that flows me is flowing out of me and touching them. That even though nothing is verbalized, the fact they have met me, a vessel, a conduit of the Holy Spirit, they've encountered Jesus. What a thought! (laughs) And yet, my brother and sister, it's true. This morning, we asked the question, what's the most important day of your life? For me it happened three months after I became ten years old. It was Boy Scout Sunday. And my friend Jimmy Foshi and I sat in the congregation in our Cub Scout uniforms. And C.W. Lipsy, who probably is the greatest preacher I've ever heard, at the close of the service, offered an invitation to any who felt led of God to come forward and confess Jesus and be immersed. And Jimmy Foshu and I came down the aisle together and confessed Christ. Within five minutes, we were in the baptistry. He first, <laughs> and then I. Amazing. I felt like I was in a tub of Alka-Seltzer <laughs> as the waters bubbled up about me. I'll never forget that day nor that experience as if it were yesterday. From that time on, with my really childlike understanding, Jesus was my Lord. Oh, how I must say over the years I failed so many ways. Romans chapter 6 is such a key. Paul in chapter 7, or 5 rather, just talked about the marvelous grace of God. And then Paul said, since His grace is so wonderful it extended us sinners, should we sin more that grace may abound? The Greek immediately is meginoita. That's as strong a negative as you can offer in the Greek language. Some of your versions say, God forbid. Some say, let it not be. (laughs) Absolutely not. I can remember when I was about 17 years of age, I was facing a particular temptation, and almost subconsciously, let's somewhat consciously, well, I'll go ahead and do it, and I pray to God, and he'll forgive me. Oh, no, that's not the way. How shall we who are dead to sin live therein any longer? For you who are buried in Christian baptism, you see, died to sin and raised to walk in newness of life. And then he goes on to say, prior to your being immersed, you were slaves to unrighteousness. But now that you have been born from above, you are slaves of righteousness. By the way, born from above is important. In John chapter 3, where Nicodemus began to talk to Jesus, and Jesus said, Unless you're born of water and of the Spirit, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Historically, that's always been understood to refer to being baptized. And so the doctrine, the teaching, and the preaching about being born again. Now that's not necessarily wrong, but it doesn't quite imply really what's said. What Jesus literally said is unless a man is born from above. And in John 14, it, uh, rather John chapter 1, and you get down around the 14th verse, it says, Those who were born not of man nor the will of man, but of God. So there is a birth that happens, a a birth from heaven that comes upon you. Even as the Holy Spirit came to Mary and and she brought forth Jesus from her womb, the Holy Spirit enters us. And there is born from above a being different from the one that went into the baptistry. This morning we're going to witness a funeral. Not a sorrowful one. (laughs) And we're going to witness a birth. May God be praised.